evening, everyone, and welcome to this evening's event entitled Change at Every Level, New Structures for Gender Equality. My name is Barbara Ridpath. I am director of St. Paul's Institute, and we are co-sponsoring this evening's event together with Just Share and Christian Aid, and I'll be chairing this evening's panel. This event forms part of our ongoing program, Women in Leadership, started last July, and I hope some of you were at an event at the cathedral um, when we did start that. Uh, since then, we've also done something called Building a Gender Equal Economy and a mentoring event for young women, um, as well as the event this evening. And I would encourage you after the event, if you have ideas of other things we should be doing around this theme, to let us know, because that'd be really useful as we build the program. Uh, also, to the extent you want to know what we're on about uh, on this subject, sign up for our website and I will stop the commercial there. Uh, I did want to mention two church news things about today, uh, because it's an auspicious day, being Lady Day in the church, uh, and also the day the second woman bishop was named, for those of you who haven't been watching your news. So it's been a very good day for women in the church today. Um, I also would like to, um, in a slightly joking way, apologize for the lack of diversity on this panel. Um, I often get yelled at if I have an all-male panel, and I suddenly realized we had an all-female event. Uh, one of the speakers told me that that was about time. <laughs> so I shouldn't apologize for the diverse, lack of diversity. We're really pleased with the panel this evening, and I'm looking forward to just listening to what they have to say. Just before I introduce our speakers, I'm going to give you a sense of how the evening will progress. Each of them will talk for 10 minutes. I'll give them a little bit of a minute's grace or so, but if they go much longer, I will cut them off. You are warned. Um, and then I'd like to leave as much time as possible for you to ask questions and for a discussion among them. Uh, I think we, we might have a little bit of a discussion among the panel while you're thinking of your questions, because sometimes it takes a little while to get the audience to ask. Uh, after the discussion, I'm going to ask each speaker to respond to the question, what can one person do? Um, and you might also be thinking about that, because I think that's a really important issue. We plan to finish at, at 8, and all of you are welcome to join us for a drink afterwards if you'd like to continue the conversation. Now, you have full biographies of all the speakers in your program, so I'm just going to give you a brief introduction to each of them. Then each of them is going to come to the podium with their remarks. Um, and I will do all the introductions at once, so I don't have to interrupt you one by one. Catherine, or oh, I've done it again. <sighs> Navratsky, whew, doesn't look like that on the paper, um, is director of Opportunity Now, the gender equal campaign from business in the community. Opportunity Now empowers employers to accelerate change for women in the workplace. Working with a membership of 200 organizations across private and public sectors, the campaign aims to increase women's success at work. She's the author of Project 28 to 40, the largest ever UK study of women at work. Our next speaker will be Fleur Bothwick, OBE, who is Director of Diversity and Inclusive Leadership for Europe, Middle East, India, and Asia at EY, a professional services firm. Fleur joined EY in 2007 as the Director of Diversity and Inclusiveness for the UK to develop and execute their first strategy on this subject. In 2008, she was asked to take on the newly created role of Director of Diversity and Inclusive Leadership for the region which covers 93 countries and 69,000 people. 
Dr. Eva Nietzert is a leading campaigning for, campaigner for gender equality and social justice. She's director at the newly formed Parity Project, which aims to bring men and women together to tackle persistent structural and cultural inequalities. Eva was previously deputy CEO at the Fawcett Society, the UK's oldest campaign for women's rights. Her expertise is in economic policy, and she has written and commented extensively on women's role in the labor market and under austerity. Our last speaker will be Loretta Minghella, OBE, who is chief executive of Christian Aid and responsible for strategic direction, plans, and programs. She joined Christian Aid in April 2010 after a career in law and regulatory enforcement. She leads Christian Aid's involvement in the ACT Alliance, an ecumenical alliance of 140 organizations working to create positive and sustainable change in the lives of poor and marginalized people, and is a member of the British Overseas Aid Group and the Disasters Emergency Committee. The theme this evening is change at every level, so we have asked the panelists to think in terms of the individual, the local, the national, and the international. Catherine, could you start us off? It all just gets so tiring constantly having to prove yourself. Every time you take on a new project, it starts again. You're never considered good at your job unless you work long hours, fight day in, day out, and listen to the sexist comments. We think women are leaving to have children, but they're not. They're leaving because they're put off. You're absolutely aware of your gender at all times, and you're determined to actually make a difference. That's part of being attracted to a male-dominated environment. Literally, it's almost everything I think about all of the time. It's like I'm going to have to take a break at some point, and so I'm conscious that I need to reach a certain level before that happens. I don't have children, but I do want them. I don't know if I can make this work, so maybe I shouldn't push myself forward. There's a direct contemporary of mine in my firm, male, same position as me. He doesn't think about it at all. He's absolutely confident he can make it work, so he's going for partnership. I'm not. I think there's an institutional element of putting up with a level of sexual harassment and incorrect assumptions about what women's priorities are that will continue to remain until there is a higher percentage of women in the upper levels of my organisation. I can speak up a bit. Can you hear me all right? Yeah? Nod at the back. Speak up more. Fine. Um, these are stories. That's not just one woman. These are stories from Project 2840. Um, just a few of over 25,000 voices who responded to a research project that we published last year. The stories of you, our stories, stories of many women in our lives uh, who are so often ignored. And I'm going to tell you more about those 25,000 voices uh, over the course of the next few minutes because they tell us unequivocally why and where we need new structures for gender equality. Um, over the years, I've become a much more evangelical believer, if you'll excuse the pun, uh, that we need to challenge the discourse around female progression at work. We need to move it from a diversity and inclusion initiative to being a core business priority. I think it's fair to say that efforts to date have somewhat exceeded uh, results to achieve a more gender-balanced workforce. And it's not for lack of incredible women who have fought for decades, the decades in which Opportunity Now has been campaigning. Nor is it for a lack of investment from business uh, in positive actions targeted at women. But we believe that by focusing mainly on the women and not the workplace, 
as opposed to, so, uh, as opposed to workplaces, and treating women as a single homogenous group, our efforts are wrongly targeted. Organisations need to do more to recognise that work isn't working for many employees, men and women. So we need a more fundamental shift. We need to place a greater focus on line managers and leaders to shift workplace behaviours. So that fundamental shift is something we sought to do with Project 2840. Project 2840, some of you might have participated, I hope you did. If not, do it next year when we do it again. Um, but we designed a national survey that would go out across the UK and Ireland to ask women about their experiences at work, actual experiences. Uh, we received 25,000 responses, so 23,000 responses from women and 2,000 responses from men. And it was an incredibly intricate survey, so it was designed to elicit deeper, more in-depth, more subtle nuances about people's experiences at work, their experiences of career development, the way they're managed, maternity experience where applicable, women's levels of ambition and confidence, their interactions with their colleagues and their, whether or not their workplaces feel inclusive. And it was fascinating because Project 2840 gives us four very clear imperatives for structural change. It tells us that the barriers that women face are workplace related, not about the women themselves. Employers are trying hard, but they are frustrated with the lack of progress and their efforts are often off target. Workplace cultures are not working for a lot of women, and for men too. And at worst, we heard about plenty of dysfunctional, inefficient, and fundamentally unjust ways in which workplaces do work. So what did we find? <clears throat> it's a widely held belief that women are less ambitious than men, that they have less desire to progress in their careers. And I was so delighted that the responses from Project 2840 absolutely exploded that myth. Women are telling us that they are confident, they are ambitious, and they're actively seeking opportunities to develop their careers. We don't need to fix the women. You're okay. Um, when we asked them what was important to them, actually men and women had very similar priorities in their aspirations, in what they wanted out of life and career. So to that extent, women and men not that different from one another. But not all women are the same, and it's important to recognise that uh, there are different phases in women's lives, that our careers go through an evolution, and that women of different backgrounds or identities might face particular challenges. Though we did identify three pretty key challenges that were fairly consistent for all women. So they are around reducing work-life conflict, gaining widespread acceptance of flexible working models, and developing role models whose experiences and behaviours actually connect with female employees. So challenge, flexible working is essential to women in balancing their commitments, yet there is still great stigma attached and it's considered a real obstacle to career progression. Challenge, many mothers feel that their employers are not doing enough to back them up in balancing their responsibilities at home and in work. They want to work hard, but they want to be measured for their outputs, not for the hours that they work. Um, and before women have even had children, they're already nervous about the impact of parenthood on careers. Challenge. The lives of senior executives, so assuming you even get that far, the lives of senior executives appear unappealing to women. And this perception of lifestyle at the top is really putting people off. Despite this incredible ambition of women in our workforce, they're not prepared to give up everything. The report was also a huge reality check for employers. We saw a real gap in men and women's perceptions that leads to incredible obstacles in the workforce. Women see unfairness in pay, uh, in access to career progression opportunities, 
um, they feel that their organisational cultures are male-dominated. Men don't recognise these barriers to the same extent, and only when men, who currently uh, hold the majority of senior leadership positions, actually start to see those challenges that women face, will we actually start to see real shift, I think, in the workplace. But more concerningly, workplace policies are failing to create safe and enabling environments for women. Despite proliferations of good guidance and good practice, and the most striking illustration of that gap is around experiences of bullying and harassment. <clears throat> Shockingly, more than half of the respondents, so of 25,000 people, said that they'd experienced some form of bullying and harassment at work in the last three years alone. Half, 52%. And a further 12% experienced sexual harassment. And when we looked at some of those examples, people were very honest about their experiences. They shared great detail um, about the things that had happened to them. Everything uh, from having to put up with sexist comments and banter, uh, right the way through to being called out at when they walked through the trading floor, uh, being in the office, uh, being asked to pick things up and guys standing behind them simulating sex. Pretty revolting behaviours. Stuff that is not okay in the workplace. Stuff that's not okay anyway, but certainly not in a workplace. And those figures around bullying and harassment were more disturbing still when we disaggregated it for women's diversity. So women with disabilities, uh, black, British, African, Caribbean women, lesbian women, bisexual women had much more common experiences of bullying and harassment. Similarly, those women were more likely to experience sexual harassment in the workplace. Uh, and women that worked in sectors that typically employ more men, much more likely to experience sexual harassment at work. And so, these stories are important because for so many women, they resonate, it's, they're, they're our experiences. And it really empowers women to, to say, actually, that's also happened to me. It empowers them to speak up. And it's incredible that pretty much every time I give one of these talks, somebody comes up to me afterwards and says, you know what, this happened to me. And we have another story, but we have another imperative for change. And so it all feels like a huge problem, but actually, we see the solution as being very simple. That fundamental shift is actually about line managers. It's about leaders shifting workplace behaviors. It's not about fixing the women. Women want the same things out of work. Uh, in terms of career development, women and men, same. They want good line management. They want good career development conversations. They're not that different in that respect. So if we're serious about change, we need chief executives, we need senior leaders, we need line managers to take the lead on women's progression. We need to move it out of this diversity initiative, this HR thing that it's been for so many years, and really turn it into a core business priority. Um, and I'd just like to finish, it's quite topical actually, um, a few things have happened today that have been incredibly interesting. Um, many of you will be aware of the new data around women in the FTSE 100 report released this morning, 23.5% of FTSE 100 directors now are women. That is superb. It shows incredible change, what a business-led voluntary initiative can do in the space of four years. We've gone up way over 10%. But it won't have escaped your notice that those directors, most of them are non-exec. Uh, only a handful of them are executive directors. We still have huge issues there. And yet, actually, the issue of women on boards sort of predominates in business, it predominates in the media, and it's such a small niche. It's such a small part of the gender inequality spectrum. We're not having the conversations that are important, that sometimes matter more. And of course, diversity in leadership matters, but we're not talking about 
the gender pay gap at its worst. We're not talking about occupational segregation. We're not talking about the fact that 64% of women, of people in low pay, are women, and that those women are least likely to ever progress out of cycles of low pay in their lifetime. We're not talking about the fact that 9.1 million women didn't vote in the last election. We're not talking about those multiple identities, the interactions of gender with race and sexual orientation or disability and the fact that sometimes that leads to multiple discriminations, different experiences that we're not always bringing out. Where are the diverse women uh, on those FTSE 100 boards? Um, so I guess I'd, I'd finish on a plea, which is let's, let's not recreate existing problems by focusing only on the issues that matter to us, that we recognize, um, because we all have a role to play in creating true gender equality. Thank you. So hello everybody. I feel a little nervous tonight talking to you because normally I have a nice PowerPoint presentation and I know you're all looking at my nice slides instead of me and I was told when I said can I bring one, absolutely not. So um, you have to focus on me unfortunately. So um, I'm Fleur Bothwick, I work at EY, um, I lead diversity and inclusive leadership and lots of people ask me what that means, what do I do? And for many years I've said, well, you know, I help people reach their full potential, we leverage different perspectives, we harness this, we do that. And about six months ago I was talking to someone who said to me, think of a football pitch. Now this could be any team game, but I'm going with football not that I'm sporty, and he said, think of a football pitch, and you've got two teams, and the football pitch is flat, and at either end of the football pitch, you've got the goalposts, so everybody playing knows where they're supposed to be kicking that ball, and they know what their role is in that team, and they know who the captain is, and they know where the yellow lines are, so they know if the ball's out. They all know the rules of the game, and then there's a referee, who is not allowed to have bias because there's great scrutiny about the decision of the referee. And, and for me, visually, that brought to life what we're trying to achieve in the corporate world, which is that level playing field. So there is transparency so that everybody knows the rules of the game and everybody gets a fair chance to perform. So I hope that helps some of you to actually understand what I do as a, a day job. Um, a tiny bit about EY. Um, it used to be Ernst & Young. We're one of the big four professional services firms. We do things like consulting, um, audits, tax advice, restructuring. My remit is one particular area, which is Europe, Middle East, India, Africa. So that's 99 countries and 80,000 people. So arguably, I have the best job because you can imagine every single day I'm challenged and I'm learning and I'm developing. And there is a lot to learn um, because of the differences in the different geographies. So um, some of these would be uh, impacted by um, society, culture. Some of them are economic, some political, some a mixture, some legal. To give you a, a sense of what I work with, we've got the Middle East, where the government has set quotas for the hiring and retention of nationals, and to the point that if you don't reach those quotas, you could be in, in danger of not getting the uh, visas that you want for your expats that you're flying in. We've got South Africa with black economic empowerment, and that's a whole different story because even the way they define black can be quite interesting. I have a colleague who was hired from HSBC in London, 
who um, is black heritage, and when he arrived in South Africa, he was classed as white because he wasn't black South African. So that is a whole different topic about where all this gets a bit silly. We've got uh, quotas across Europe for the hiring and retention of disabled people, and in some countries we pay fines of up to 1 million euros for not hitting those quotas. And then probably for me worst, we've got legislation in some of our um, countries in EMEA, which mean that if you are gay, you could be subject to the death penalty, which, you know, us sitting here now is... You st I still take a deep breath when I say that, and we're not talking about one country, we're talking about many. So we have um, legislation, we have religious considerations, we have East versus West, often discussions about our firm's global values and the fact they were developed in the West. We also have the impact of working uh, with um, established markets and emerging markets. If we're working with India, their billable hours are significantly less than us. So when we're trying to get everybody together for training, what they consider an enormous expense is less so for us. So a, a lot of considerations to think about. Even how we talk about diversity and inclusion, when I talk to you about inclusive leadership, I'm talking about everybody understanding their own style and then having an appreciation of what other people need in that working relationship. And what we say is what we want you to be able to do is encourage everybody to have a view and sometimes that will be dissenting it won't be the view you want to hear so that's how we talk about inclusive leadership if you think about some of my countries with the hierarchies and the levels of respect going in and saying we're encouraging junior people to be potentially disrespectful to more senior people by questioning them doesn't sit very comfortably so what we say is we have an area framework and then we allow for local customization. And the one thing we do focus on across the area is gender because that's the one area that we can consistently report on. What plays in my favor for what I'm doing is that we have something called Vision 2020, which is our business strategy. And that's all about what we're going to achieve by 2020. And one of the key enablers is to have high-performing teams. And we looked at 22,000 of our audit assignments globally, and we made the direct link between diverse teams and profitable teams retaining quality. So we know that high-performing teams mean diverse teams, not more men, not more women, but diverse teams, and teams that are engaged. So that's sort of the foundation of my business case. Um, at an area level, what I do every day is I focus on lots of different areas. We look at um, sexual orientation, we look at flexibility, we look at uh, the different generations, we look at ethnicity. But just for today, I'm going to talk to you about gender because that's our, our theme. So, we have a gender strategy. It's in two pieces and personally I believe you have to have the two pieces to make progress. One piece is about what the organisation is committed to doing. So that's the whole culture change. That's the stuff we're doing, like our people processes, our business processes, for instance, raising people's awareness about a conscious bias. And then there's a whole piece about how we empower our women to partner with us. And that will be things like women's networks, women's leadership programs, sponsorship. So the two have to come together. This is not about fixing our women, because they don't need fixing. 
Um, if I touch on some of those elements, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the whole concept of bias or unconscious bias. There's a great book I would recommend, Blink, by Malcolm Gladwell. Um, and he basically presents to us that our brain is processing so much information all the time that we have to rely on past experience to make a lot of our decisions. And often, they are the best decisions. So if you think about, this is quite simplistic, but when you go to cross the road, you automatically look left and right, or right and left, depending on which country you're in. Your brain doesn't go, stop, look left and right, you just do it, because you're so programmed to do it, just to prevent being run over. You don't put your hand on a hot ring on a cooker, because just deep down, you know that you're gonna burn yourself. And so a lot of the time, that bias is helping us make quick, valuable decisions. When we're applying that to people, that can derail us. So I'm being very basic here, but if you go to interview a recently married woman of 32, your bias in the back of your mind could be saying, well, I wonder when she's starting a family. I've already got two people on maternity leave. I don't need another one. Most, mo I have a, my middle child's redhead, so I can say this. Some people will say, look at a redhead, or they're going to be fire, fiery temperament. I don't know where all this comes from, but it's stuff with a little crow in the back of your mind. So when you're interviewing someone or assessing someone, you're either looking for confirmation that you think they're great or confirmation that you think they're not going to be that good. And on the plus side, someone can walk in that happens to have the same shopping bag at the shop that you, you buy from, say a Bowdoin for a woman, and you might immediately think, gosh, she's got good taste in clothes. I buy my clothes from Bowdoin. So you're immediately bonding with this individual. You're immediately looking for reasons why they're right for the job. So it can really derail your people decisions. And so we do a lot around raising awareness. You can't get rid of this. We're hardwired with our bias. But if you, the research shows if you raise awareness and people are aware of it, they're going to make a more measured decision when they're working with people. And when we did our analysis with our recruitment and our ranking of people, um, all, our all our people decisions, we could see clearly that there was some bias in play. Um, we, we have three women leadership, uh, female leadership programs, development programs. Um, pretty Marmite conversation, because some people are very anti, some people are very pro. We have three, they target different levels of our, our women. We've been running one of them since 2008. 700 women from across EMEA have attended. We've just done a big ROI, a return on investment review with a professor from a, a university in the States, and have made the direct link between our investment and a positive return. So. We don't have time in this 10 minutes, but if anyone is at all interested um, in, in the work we've done around this, happy to share um, at another time. But I'm a great supporter of saying there are certain times and places where it is very healthy to separate the men and women out and give the women a place where they can actually sit and think about their career. Um, for me, the, the biggest, from a corporate perspective, the most successful thing we've done is run something called Career Watch which is a sponsorship program. And very simplistically, most of you are familiar with mentoring. So mentoring is a bit like a fireside chat. You, you decide your agenda, you meet once a month. It's usually quite um, uh, confidential. Sponsorship is very different. This is where we pick our senior 
partners out and we say, this person you need to sponsor for the next three years very publicly. You need to sit down with them and work out what they need to do to make, in this case, maybe partner in three years. What are the barriers? What will stop them getting that promotion? And that sponsor is very personally taking on responsibility for success of that program. Again, we've got a neat, quite a basic toolkit, so if anyone is interested in sponsorship, I'm happy to share that with them. And then a really great topic, targets. Now these are not quotas. Quotas are quite emotive. Um, I'm actually for quotas, although EY is not, but I'll stick to targets. So targets, every other element of what we do at work, we talk about what success looks like, what we're trying to achieve. So why would we not say we're focused on um, getting more of our women through our leadership pipeline to partner, why would we not talk about what success looks like? So we've used targets for uh, since 2009. It was only at the beginning of last year we used our analytics team to look at all our data, everything we've been doing since 2009, and we've been doing some really good stuff. And we asked them to analyze with if we carry on doing everything we've been doing since 2009, where are we going to be in 2020? So in 2009, 13% of our partners were female. And when we did this um, exercise last year, 15% of our partners were female. And so they did this enormous, it took them nearly a year, this enormous project. And they came back to us and said, if you do everything you're doing, you keep doing it all, in 2020, 15% of your partners will be female, so no increase, which was a fabulous wake-up call for my exec, who, who then set more rigorous targets, and then when we reviewed it again in November of last year, we could see some progress, progress, but it was glacial, it was so slow, it was painful. So now they've actually mandated the targets, they've actually linked them to um, performance ranking, which is a first, it's something we haven't done before. So I'm an evangelical, I think, about, about targets and, and agreeing where you're trying to get to and then linking it to accountability. So, two things to summarise. Clear business case, ideally burning platform, you need to know what's going on, you need to make sure that you, you have a framework if you're working globally, an agreement around that framework and what you're trying to achieve, but then allow your geographies to customize. You need a clear vision for success. You need to know and be able to talk to what you're trying to achieve and why you're trying to achieve it. For us, it's high-performing teams. You need the accountability and you need to move beyond what I call sheep dipping training. You need to find ways to, to move behavioral change. It's not just mindset, it's behavioral change. What gets measured gets done, we say a lot. And then I want to leave you with a, um, a short story. And I hope the men in the room will forgive me slightly. It's just a story that appealed to me. Um, it was about a group of executives who got together and they were planning their um, off-site. And they were planning the, the activity at the end of the off-site where they all get together and do something that was a bit of fun. And historically, they've been to watch the rugby, they've watched the cricket, they've been to the football. And while they were discussing this, they were reminded that by the time they do the off-site, they would have a new board member and it would be a woman. So they needed to come up with something that would appeal to her. So they had this long discussion about all the things that wouldn't appeal to her. 
including, which surprises me, um, tennis, which they thought maybe wouldn't work, and swimming. One of them said, no, 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 women aren't good swimmers. We can't do swimming. So they settled on fishing. <laughs> so the off-site came around, and they all got in their boats, and they all rowed away from the shore, and suddenly the woman said, oh, no, I've left my handbag on the shore. And the men looked at each other, and no one was going to volunteer to row back. She said, hang on a minute. She got up. She walked across the water to the shore. She picked her handbag up, and she walked back to the boat and got inside. And the two men looked at each other and said, told you they couldn't swim. <laughs> Thank you. Good evening. It's a real pleasure to be here in such a fantastic venue and with such a fabulous panel. And uh, Barbara, I suspect you're right. I think this is probably a lectern that hasn't seen too many female speakers. I feel like I have to stand on tiptoes to see you. So um, we're probably breaking the rules. <laughs> I was really relieved to receive the speaker's brief for tonight's event um, because I felt like we were really chewing off rather a lot. And I was relieved when Robert told me I was just focusing on the national level, not gender equality at the national, local, individual, and global. So I've been asked to talk to you about the changes we need to see at the national policy level to achieve gender equality. No, no big ask for 10 minutes. Um, like most people who campaign on gender equality, I have my well-rehearsed shopping list of asks. And it's one that, at this point in the political cycle, rolls off the tongue rather easily. Raise the national minimum wage because the majority of women, um, it's, the majority of those on low pay are women. Um, address the low level of maternity pay, and the list goes on. But I don't actually want to rehearse my, my shopping list tonight because I think we have set ourselves a really ambitious task. And what those shopping lists tend to do, not ill-advisedly, is they tend to be geared to what's achievable over the next political term. And if we're really talking about gender equality, then I don't want to talk about policies that are going to tinker around the edges. I really want us to think about how we change the landscape. And so if we're going to think about how we change the landscape, we need to recognize that that tinkering at the current pace of change, we're told that a child born today will be drawing her pension before they're equal men and women in parliament. That it's going to take us 70 years to close the gender pay gap. So we really do need more fundamental change. So where do we start to intervene? Well, I think we have to be really clear about what causes gender inequalities, what sustains the current inequalities. And as I see it, there are two main factors. One of them is money. Who has wealth and who controls access to future wealth creation? And the other is cultural, and specifically the cultural expectations around what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. And these two factors are, of course, intertwined with each other. They are now, and they have been through history. I think they've been at the root of gender inequalities, and they continue to be generative of new gender inequalities. Let me illustrate this. Take the assumption that women take responsibility for unpaid caring work. And we've already heard today from both 
Fleur and from Catherine how this assumption that women will raise children conditions their experiences of work. If we take that assumption, that's limited not only the access that women have to paid work, but I, I would argue also informed assumptions about the types of work that they will do and how that work should be remunerated. So I think there's a very clear continuity between women doing the lion's share of unpaid domestic work and the fact that the paid care sector is highly feminized and woefully underpaid. And now these two big factors that I'm arguing sustain gender inequality, money and culture, are of course also inflected with race, sexuality, socioeconomic status and other factors like disability. So absolutely there are very different gendered expectations depending on where you sit within those intersectional dimensions. But despite those differences, I would argue that there is a fundamental that divide that opens up as a result of the assumptions about who has responsibility specifically for the raising of children. And I say that not just because I'm a mother of two young children and I stand before you very heavily pregnant with a third, hoping that my husband's going to do a lot more childcare. I say that to you because I really strongly believe that it matters. And it matters not just to those women who have children. It matters to all women and it matters to men. And the reason for that is because it's in that moment when we make that assumption about who has responsibility for raising children that we make particular assumptions about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. And those assumptions are at the root of gendered stereotypes that condition, I would argue, from a very early age, our life paths and therefore also our access to economic opportunities and other life opportunities. So I believe that if we want to shift these powerful gendered expectations, and this is going to be a generational or multi-generational project, we are talking about the long game here, we need to shift our understandings about who has responsibility for caring. And the most pivotal moment where we can intervene in that question around who cares and who should do caring is, I would argue, around the raising of children. So how do we shift those societal expectations? In my view, we have to create a policy infrastructure that can drive cultural change. So we need a policy infrastructure that values caring and that incentivizes men to play an active role, particularly in childcare. Now, my partner and I have been incredibly fortunate to be in a financial position where we've both been able to work part-time. And as a committed feminist, it was always my intention that we share childcare. Now, after the birth of my second child, my daughter, we shared caring responsibilities almost 50-50 from the time she was seven months old. And it's been absolutely fascinating to observe how this modeling of shared parenting even at a very young age, has impacted her understandings of gender. My daughter, who's just about to turn two, when she sees a picture of an adult and a baby animal, be it an elephant or a bear or a cow, she will point to the adult animal, and more often than not, she'll say daddy and baby, which, for anybody who's experienced, had experience with toddlers, will know that that's actually quite unusual. And that's the shift 
that I believe we need to see happen at a societal level, that we assume that men just as, are just as likely to do the work of caring as women. And if we achieve that shift, then we open up a whole new range of ways of being for both men and for women. But such a shift in parenting won't just happen on its own. For a start, I'm patently aware that it simply isn't a financial reality for most people working in Britain who struggle to get by on two incomes, let alone one, to both work part-time in the way that my husband and I have been able to do. That's why we need that policy framework that recognizes the value of caring and incentivizes shared responsibility. And in my view, we've missed some very big opportunities quite recently with the introduction of shared parental leave. So some of you might be aware that from next month, mothers and fathers will be able to share parental leave after the mother has taken the first two weeks of leave. While this is a step in the right direction, most commentators believe that uptake of shared parental leave by fathers is actually going to be very low. And that's because we miss the opportunity to put in place two key policy levers that in the absence of cultural change, and I really believe that in this particular instance, cultural change is going to follow the policy change. We miss the opportunity to put in place these two levers that would encourage fathers to look after their children from a young age. The first of those was a use it or lose it component for father's leave. We know from other countries that have these types of policy measures that they really work. Take the example of Norway, which has a father's quota of nearly three months. In Norway, around 90% of new dads make use of that quota. And what's incredibly important about taking that early leave is that it establishes the bond that then can lead to later involvement in childcare. The other policy lever that we missed an opportunity on, I think this was the one that we were always going to struggle to get movement on under the um, austerity measures that we saw for the last coalition government, was decent pay for um, during maternity leave and paternity leave. So at the moment, statutory maternity pay, which is payable for 39 weeks, is paid at £138 per week, so that's not even close to the level of the minimum wage. Now, this does two things. It sends a very clear message about the value that we as a society place on caring work, and it also makes it financially impossible for many to sacrifice that income, to leave their paid roles, full-time paid roles, to receive £138 a week. Is there any appetite for these two measures? Well, on the one hand, because we've just had the reform of parental leave and the introduction of shared parental leave, to some extent we might expect the door to be closed. And I think that's certainly the case if the Conservatives are returned to power on their own. However, we do know that there is some appetite amongst Labour and to a lesser extent among the Lib Dems. We know of one shadow cabinet member whose office has actually been doing the figures on how much it would cost to pay uh, statutory maternity pay at the level of the minimum wage. So there are openings. And I think we all need to work hard to exploit those. Those of us who work in this area need to monitor very actively what the uptake 
of shared parental leave is over the next 12 to 24 months. And if it is, as we expect, extremely low, we all need to do our bit to remind our political leaders who welcome this initiative because allegedly it was going to increase fathers' involvement in childcare of those two key policy levers that we need in order to really achieve that cultural change. When I'm realistic though, I think our chances of success on this one will really depend a lot on the shape of the next government and of course that's something that we're going to know about um, in just six short weeks. And given that it is just six short weeks until the election, I um, don't want to finish tonight by disappointing anyone who did come here and want to know what our five top gender equality election asks are. So um, these, to fit on the back of a pledge card, thank you Tony Blair, are um, the Parity Project top five gender equality asks. The first is raising the national minimum wage to progressively bring it in line with the living wage. Again, because women um, predominant, um, are predominantly um, amongst the low paid. The second is that we need to mitigate the gendered impacts of welfare cuts. So today, the last figures that we have show that roughly four-fifths of savings from benefit cuts have come from women's pockets. The third is that we need to restore and raise support for violence against women's services, which have been particularly hearted, um, especially in cuts from local authorities. The fourth, you won't be surprised, is to raise the level of maternity pay to the level of the minimum wage. And finally, um, our fifth ask is that initiatives are introduced to tackle gendered stereotypes in education. And what we're asking for here is um, accreditation for schools to become gender equality leaders, which would see them undertake an auditing process of their curriculum right through to how they dispense careers advice. So those are our top five. I'm happy to take more questions on those. And with that, I will hand over to Loretta to tackle, I believe, the global. Well, good evening. Shortly after I took over at Christian Aid in 2010, I traveled to Kenya to see some of our sanitation work there. I met Evelyn Katuku, spokeswoman for her community in the Matapeni slum outside Nairobi. The community lacked a clean water supply, any functioning toilets or showers. Sewage washed into the slum when it rained and disease was rife. Evelyn invited me into her home, a hut not much bigger than a garden shed. In a bed in the corner dying, Evelyn's father no longer able to afford the cancer treatment he needed. At 12 pounds a time, it had become unaffordable. And Evelyn explained that she was unmarried and wanted to preserve herself, but she didn't know how they would afford to bury her father when he died. And it took me a while for me to understand her meaning that she was contemplating trading her virginity to pay for his no doubt imminent funeral. I asked her what kept her going and she told me about her paralegal training, which meant that she was able to represent members of her community and give them advice when they found themselves in difficulty, which whilst unpaid, 
gave her great personal satisfaction. Here we have both the scandal and the hope, an insight into the huge and particular vulnerabilities that women often face, but also an insight into their capacity to lead change for the better when they are given the opportunity. Christian Aid works in 40 countries to tackle the symptoms and causes of poverty, and that gives us the chance to walk in solidarity with the world's poorest people. And the large majority of people living below the extreme poverty line, perhaps two-thirds of the world's poorest people, are women and girls. So if we're serious about tackling global poverty, we have to tackle gender inequality. Because poverty is not just about money, poverty is about the uneven distribution of personal, social, and political, as well as economic power. And women are worse off the world over in each of these four dimensions. Let's have a look at each of them in turn, starting with personal power, which manifests itself in physical vulnerability. Domestic violence and sexual violence against women are major public health problems. Recent global prevalence figures from the World Health Organization indicate that 35% of women worldwide have experienced either intimate partner violence or non-partner sexual violence in their lifetime. In 2013, UN research based on 10,000 men in Asia found that one in four admitted to having committed a rape, sexual entitlement being their main reason, the belief that men are entitled to sex regardless of consent. Layer onto this the fact that more than 220 million women in developing countries have such difficulty in accessing family planning. Inadequate family planning, when combined with inadequate maternal health care, means that pregnancies happen earlier and more frequently than can be safely managed. There were 289,000 maternal deaths globally in 2013, almost all of them in developing countries. Moving on beyond the purely personal power dimension to the social dimension, women's place in society is not guaranteed before the law. In too many countries, women need permission from their husbands to embark on a profession or open a business. In many countries, daughters and sons do not have equal inheritance rights. Many countries fail to outlaw domestic and sexual violence. In practice, national laws, even where they exist and are not adequately enforced, in many parts of the world, discriminatory customary laws take precedence over national legislation. So whatever the position at the national level on very early forced marriage or FGM or honour killing, it may not be outlawed in the traditional legal system enforced where that girl lives. It remains a matter of sorrow and condolence in many countries when a woman gives birth to a girl rather than a boy and the statistics show that boy-baby preference in some countries does not just entail a series of commiserations. According to the census in India, for example, there were only 919 girls for every 1,000 
boys in 2011. The third dimension is political. Women are underrepresented at every level of decision-making which affects them in the political realm right across the world. Only 22% of all national parliamentarians across the world were female as of January this year. We're all too familiar with that here in the UK. The fourth dimension is economic. Globally, women are paid less than men. Women in most countries earn, on average, only 60 to 75% of men's wages for the same work. And what about tax? We've heard a lot recently about how tax dodging is diminishing public revenues and disproportionately impacts poor people. This has acute consequences in poor countries where essential public services like healthcare are so woefully underfunded. Developing countries often find it difficult to raise sufficient revenues because of widespread tax dodging by large corporations and wealthy individuals. The IMF has routinely advised such countries to look to VAT as it is efficient, raises a considerable amount of revenue and is relatively easy to administer. Unsurprising then that in developing countries VAT can represent a substantial proportion of total tax revenue, often around a quarter. In 2013, the Kenyan government amended the VAT laws to impose VAT on a long list of essential household items. This change impacted much harder on the disposable income of women because many of the items were on the list of what women rather than men were expected to buy. We, with our partners, got that partly reversed, but in other countries, tax policies are less progressive. And then there's a huge burden we've reflected on already on unpaid domestic work. A recent project of ours in Ethiopia was typical in identifying that a woman's day involved about 18 hours of work, mostly unpaid, whereas a man in the same community did about seven hours of work, mostly paid. There's some of the problems. What about the solutions? Thankfully, there are solutions, but they do involve change at every level. First, we have got to get the macro frameworks right. In September, nations should gather at the United Nations General Assembly to sign off a new development framework for the next 15 years to replace the Millennium Development Goals. We've been campaigning for a standalone goal as part of these Sustainable Development Goals around gender equality. And despite pushback, it looks as though we will get that. And it's important that all the other Sustainable Development Goals are only regarded as achieved if they are achieved for women and girls, as well as for men and boys. And again, it looks as though countries will have to disaggregate their data to make progress for women and girls, or lack of it, fully visible. And that's so important because what gets measured gets managed. Those goals will be universal for the global north and south alike. They will apply here. They should help us drive legal change across the world, and we need to continue to support calls for laws everywhere which guarantee 
uh, equal pay, equal rights to inherit, outlaw child marriage, FGM, domestic abuse, sexual abuse, and so on. These laws must be fully enforced. If we're to make serious and sustainable progress, we need to tackle the international tax dodging that leaves essential services like health and education underfunded. We need gender responsive policies around how tax is imposed. We need gender responsive budgeting to make sure that governments meet the particular needs of women and girls for education, family planning and maternal health care. And we need to ensure financial support for those women's rights and other civil society groups which are monitoring government budgets and fighting for gender equality. And these issues around financing need to be on the agenda of the United Nations Financing for Development Summit, which will take place in Addis Ababa in the summer. At the local level, we need to continue to support women to become financially independent, educated, and politically active. Christian Aid Week in May will focus on how we and our partners have been tackling discrimination against women in Ethiopia, giving them livestock, which becomes a source of income, status, voice and power, together with training and support for advocacy to help convert all of that into change in the traditional laws of the community around child marriage and FGM. I really commend to you the film about LOCO on our website or YouTube, an incredibly powerful five-minute film about just how transformational well-targeted interventions can be. At the community level, we can also recognize the huge power that faith leaders have to change the harmful social norms that are keeping women poor. Christian Aid's new gender strategy will support faith leaders to advocate for the equal value of women and girls, and this is a priority for us in the coming few years. And finally for now, we need to change the harmful social norms we have. We need to do that by working also with men and boys. They are diminished by the diminishing of women and girls and our models of masculinity are very damaging for them too. In our Ethiopian project that I've just mentioned, even getting the men and women together to compare notes on the hours of paid and unpaid work they do has begun to change the dynamics and men have started to pay a bigger role in the household chores. And that's changed the way they regard the women and the work they do. It's no longer seen as necessarily women's work. It's hard to overestimate the importance of these shifts in cultural understanding of what it means to be a man or to be a woman. To sum up then, global poverty has a woman's face. The challenges are huge and complex, but the moral and economic imperatives are clear, and we know what we need to do. At Christian Aid, that gives us confidence that our vision of a world where women and men are treated as of equal value made in the image of God, with gender seen not as a source of deprivation but a gift to be celebrated, that world is within our grasp. Thank you very much.
I owe you an apology because I did a lousy job of timekeeping because I was enjoying listening to the women so much. So we're slightly behind. Um, I'm going to ask one question while you think of yours, and it was very convenient that um, Loretta ended with something about how men and boys are diminished by the status of women. Because between that and what Ava said about sharing childcare responsibilities, I have long noticed that many successful women in this country and in my home country in America have partners behind them that do share the responsibility. Almost all, I bet almost all of us at this table do. And I think we would do so much better on gender equality if we could get men on side and have help them recognize that it is better for them as well. So I'm going to ask each of the panelists what they think we should do to improve that. How do we get men on side? Who wants to go first? I might, Barbara, because I think it's a bit of a gift to the Parity Project. So Parity Project is a new campaigning organization. We've been set up specifically for that reason. I have worked for a long time on gender equality, most recently at the Fawcett Society, which many of you will know is a women's rights organization. And one of the things that I felt increasingly strongly before setting up Parity Project was that we're not going to get gender equality if we read gender as shorthand for women's rights, but that we, in fact, need to see gender equality as a project that is about men and women. So I think that's absolutely fundamental. And I think what Loretta said, that these gender stereotypes limit men as much as women, is absolutely true. And I think one of the things we need to do if we want to involve men in the conversation around gender equality is start to be honest about the areas in which men are really limited. And I think if I, I'm looking at it more from a national UK scale, and what we see there is, for example, in certain areas of mental health, men are lagging behind women to a really significant degree. The male suicide rate is much higher. Male rates of drug and alcohol addiction are much higher. A lot of that, many people believe, are to do with expectations around how men should process their emotions or how, better yeah. said, they should keep them to themselves. And so I think if we really look at gender equality in the round um, and not just see gender equality as being synonymous with women's rights, we can start to open up that conversation bring men into the frame and work together because I really think until we start working together with men, we're not going to actually make progress for women either. Anybody else? Yeah, I'll, I mean, I can share with a more corporate hat. On a personal level, I've got three children and my youngest is autistic with quite profound needs. And my husband, Dan, has been the main carer um, for all their life. So I'm, I'm typically breadwinner and he's carer. And that's another conversation, because we obviously do it very differently, and that's been interesting for our dynamic. But um, there's a lot of research um, for corporates that talk about the need to engage, to engage men in the, um, in the whole conversation. And what the most recent research from McKinsey tells us is that actually um, the average man, and I'm sorry for guys in the room because I'm stereotyping here, but the average man is absolutely 100% for equality and wants to partner. Just genuinely, a lot of the time, they genuinely don't understand what all these challenges are, what is going on for us women as we're trying to create this level playing field. So it's a question of engaging, and, and certainly sophisticated uh, DNI programs are absolutely engaging men um, as very much part of this conversation. 
just chip in? I mean, also my, my husband works part-time and our two children have been largely brought up um, by him during the week anyway. Um, but I think better off for that. Um, uh, some of our work um, in the, with, with men and boys has been actually looking at what are the downsides for them uh, that their women folk and their communities are doing all of this unpaid work and are carrying the load, often literally carrying the load of water and firewood and exhausting themselves. And they have seen, um, you know, we've seen this in Ghana, we've seen this in Sierra Leone and other places, Malawi, if you work around that with men and boys and women and girls, they see huge benefits actually if they release some of their women folks' energy to have even more time for them if they do some of the chores. And it kind of, in it, and we've, there, some of our partners actually use you know, livestock incentives and other incentives to begin this work. There's some gender model family work in Sierra Leone and Ghana that's quite interesting. And then, you know, small incentives that get people to try and start talking to each other. And then it kind of rolls because it, it has obvious benefits. And uh, as I say, it, it becomes very easy to see work as work rather than work as women's work or men's work um, if everybody's sharing it. Mm. And just finally, can you hear me okay at the back, Robert, on this? Okay. Um, I mean, we have we have no choice really with that opportunity now, but to engage with business leaders, who majority of whom um, in the city of London in the UK are still men. Um, and it's something right from the beginning of our organisation. It's something we've worked very hard to do. Um, we have some fantastic men that sit on our advisory board, and I think one really tangible example of where men can can lead the change in this space. We uh, nationwide. Uh, everyone's favourite building society sits on our advisory board, um, led by a guy called Tony Prestedge, who's the chief operating officer. Um, you may remember a couple of years ago, uh, there was an issue on Facebook where um, people were starting to see very public content appear that was um, showing all sorts of graphic images. Um, it was you know, different groups, different pages, um, publicly available showing stuff that is particularly gender violent, all sorts of particularly horrendous, misogynist, sexist content. And the, the damage was that, the, the challenge was that uh, there's lots of corporate advertising that runs down that sidebar. So different campaigns like Everyday Sexism, uh, women, uh, Women's Action in Media, etc. instead of going after Facebook, because Facebook didn't really do very much about that, they went after the, the um, organizations that had advertising listed down the side. Um, very clever way of doing it, go after the people that are, in, that, that are involved from, from the sidelines, quite literally. Um, lots of companies came back and said, yeah, we're talking to Facebook about this, isn't it all horrendous? But they didn't do a great deal about it. Nationwide, led by a male chief executive and uh, chief operating officer, Tony, who sits on my board, pulled their advertising immediately. And they were very clear with a very public statement um, about the need to be a responsible business and to act uh, in that space and to do something that challenges um, accepted norms around violence against women. So I think I, I really like that example. It's a particularly mm. tangible one for us. That's great. Now we're going to give you a chance to ask some questions. There is a, Nicola has a roving mic. If you'd put your hands up, she was going to take you in groups of two. And if you could keep your questions brief, that would be helpful because we can get as much time from the panelists speaking as possible. Thank you. Um, my name is Michaela Youngson and I'm a senior leader in the Methodist Church in Britain. Um, and it's over 40 years since we agreed to ordain women. 
um, and we kind of thought we'd done what we needed to do and we ticked the box and the cultural change that was necessary to transform the organisation really hasn't taken place and um, I'm starting to manoeuvre about how we move that on and what I'm interested in is a sense of we're a non-profit we don't have a bottom line what is how do we convince non-profits of the business case because we don't talk in business case language I mean I can give the theological reasons why I think it's a good idea but I wonder if panel members have arguments to help convince why any organization where money isn't necessarily the issue um, should transform itself culturally to bring women into the roles of leadership that they should be in. That's a, that's a great question. Can we take one more and then we'll divide up who takes them? Diverse in our unity and united in our diversity. That's what it's about, definitely. And all of the speakers tonight have spoke extremely well. I have two simple questions, please. Uh, the first one is in relation to cognitive thought. One of the speakers mentioned about schools. We have to start early by education because by the time people get to work, they're already impregnated with, how can I put it? If you're a male, you're blue. If you're female, then you may be pink. That is wrong. If you look behind you and you look at the, if you look behind you and you look at the image of Christ, you can see it's purple. Why is it that colour, for instance? Why couldn't it be a female perceived colour? That's the first thing. We need to look at the whole of the issues in relation to sexuality. We need to look at all of the issues in relation to gender. Where do you start? And I do think that you've got to start with young people. Thank you. Do you want to try and fit one more in? And we'll do one, with, there's one there. That's great. Hi, um, I, my name is Jessie. Um, I had a question for Fleur, actually. Um, I was really interested to hear about the positive action that EMY is taking. Um, I wondered if you report on the gender pay gap. Um, and if you do, how you measure it, and if you find that's a helpful approach to uh, change culture, or if you feel that your approach on um, tackling women at different uh, levels of the business is more effective. Yeah, I can answer that. And just a very quick comment, because this morning I was at, um, Catherine mentioned the FTSE 100 this, this morning the announcement, and Joe Swinson was on the panel, and there was a very interesting, to this gentleman, conversation about how early you start with your interventions, men, women, and there's, there's lots of really interesting research about however you parent, there's so much socialization through televisions and, and toys and whatever else that the, the girls do often go one way, the boys go another. Jo Swinson's observation is that she goes into a lot of schools and she's always struck by the fact that she does her piece and then she opens up to the, the young children for questions and she said it's always the boys who put their hand up first and ask a question. So she was talking about this whole thing about um, you know, encouraging. Personally, I don't think this is a confidence thing. I hate hearing people say women don't have com I mean, I hate hearing that. Women lack ambition, women don't have confidence. I don't believe either of those things. But I think women tend to be 
taught quite subtly that perhaps the way the, the boys show confidence isn't quite appropriate for a girl. But sorry, to answer your EY question, I can tell you that it's, it's inconsistent across EMEA because it's 99 countries. I can speak for the UK that has been doing equal pay reviews for quite some time now. I think it's quite a relatively unsophisticated approach. So they look, everybody's in a certain rank and they look at all the ranks, male, female, and they look at the average, and they look at the highest and lowest. Um, I don't think it's sophisticated enough because everybody at EY gets an annual ranking. So if you're one or two, you have performance problems. Three, you're doing the job you're paid for. Four, five, you're um, high potential. And you're ranked in review committees. And you'll remember I talked about unconscious bias and how we how we speak about people and I believe there's bias before we start the equal pay review because what we do is we look at all the people who ranked five, all the people ranked four, but if the women aren't being appropriately ranked, they're already <laughs> not being looked at properly. So I can say from a UK perspective, they do an equal pay review, they are um, comfortable with the outcome. Um, and have been doing it year on year. Germany does an equal pay review. They won an award recently for, for what they do. But I still think it's slightly flawed. Um, and in terms of, I think you asked about transparency of that. I know that in the UK, we're members, we were early takers of the Think, Act, Report campaign. Um, but in honesty, I don't know if we actually, I'd have to check that, or you could probably check it actually on, online, whether we actually publish I do know the UK is very open with all that they're doing, pretty transparent. I think this is fascinating because when I was running a company many years ago, we actually looked, we had a one to five scale, Yep. and I made them tell me what percentage were male and yes. female in every ranked category for every level in the company because, and pay reviews, when, when they were doing the ranking, if they didn't look, if they looked anomalous, we made them go back. Well, I can tell you just quickly, not taking the whole floor from everyone, but you know, when we look at the EMEA figure, um, at manager level, we have a pretty good distribution at four and five, so men and women high potential. At five, which is super exciting, a lot of the women disappear. Some countries are worse than others. And apologies to anyone who's Italian. Um, I was in Italy last year with a group of partners, and I said, where do all these women go? They're all here at manager, and they disappear. And quite quite a young manager um, said, uh, sorry, a partner said to me, oh, well, they've either had the babies or they're going to have the babies. And if they have the babies, they can't be partner. So we don't make them five. <laughs> and I sat there, this is September last year, thinking, well, I suppose at least I know what he's thinking. And all the other partners just nodded. So I thought, well, at least he's being open with me, because in the UK, they probably wouldn't say that. But that was September 2014. Um, these poor women were off having babies, so they couldn't be partners. So, to your point, sorry. Loretta, you, you want to say something? I was, I was going to respond to a slightly different point, a question about how do you address the yeah. question of equality in a non-profit? And I think that, you know, the fact that there's quite good data about how gender equality increases growth in countries, there's, you know, World Economic Forum data on that drawn from over 100 countries, correlating increased gender equality with better macroeconomic outcomes. That, that kind of tells you something about women fully realizing their potential contributes something really significant. And as a chief executive, I would say, all my experience of leadership and management is that when people feel fully present, and when people feel fully valued, they really perform. 
You know, when people feel only half valued or half present, that not all of, all of everything about them is really counted, then you're not going to have their full discretionary energy and their engagement. So I think it kind of is, is kind of basic leadership and management stuff that... And in I think it applies... Sector, isn't it? Private or public? Private, public uh, yeah. or third sector, and I've yeah. worked in all three. I mean, I think it's just the same. Mm. I think it's a, if you're not making a business case, you're making an operational effectiveness case or an organisational effectiveness case. So mm. you can compare it with something like, certainly not in, in terms of what you do abroad, but uh, the UK Armed Forces, um, who we do work with and who, you know, yes, they're not talking about bottom line, but they are talking about operations overseas. And for them, it's all about operational effectiveness and recognition women soldiers, more female officers in, means they are better when, you know, they're better engaging with the communities that they serve overseas. There are conversations actually that only female officers and soldiers can have in the community with women um, and sometimes with men too, but, you know, when, when male soldiers and officers can't. So it's about finding that hook for your organisation, which is, I think, absolutely for the church, it's about the communities that you serve. You know, women want to see strong female leaders. There, there will be certain issues they can actually only talk to women about as well you need to be able to create that space for them um, but it is going to be slow to change and the few women that go first are always going to be the pioneers so it's also about working with them to make sure that they bring other women with them and don't give up the fight because they've already had to struggle so hard on their own that's great now we let's try and get three more questions anybody else oh, thank you um, I was wondering if the panel could comment. Could you speak up? Sorry. I was wondering if the panel could comment on why they think such a small percentage of tonight's audience is actually male. <laughs> Good question. One there and then there's one back there. Um, thank you all for your comments tonight. Um, all four of you have such fantastic platforms from which you can implement change. I was wondering if you had any advice on how one lone person in maybe a male-dominated industry can actually make a difference? Great question. Um, yeah, my name is Belinda. Um, there, there's, there seem to me to be, um, there, there's this picture of um, gender difference as something which is a cultural construction which we meet, need to overcome and this is the source of all inequality. Um, I'm, a, I'm a mother and a full-time carer and um, amongst, and I also um, am a member of something called Mothers at Home Matter and amongst the mothers, that the, the, a lot of the women that I know who are mothers, um, being a mother is actually a very fundamental part of our identity it's not a cultural construction. Um, and actually, all, all of you are, are women with very interesting, high-profile jobs. But actually, if you're working in um, you know, ordinary, everyday jobs, family is your main priority. And there are actually a whole host of very good reasons um, why women are paid less, it's because they choose different kind of work which goes with their priority. I think I've, I've read Alison Wolfe's book a few times and, and there's a lot of very well backed up data there which shows that men and women are paid the same for the same kind of work they do but the reason that women end up with less money is because they have a different set of priorities and this is what I see all around me and I feel that 
so that's one thing. And that the idea that it's all constructed is actually having a very destructive impact on mothers who, who actually feel very much forced into the workplace. And if you look at net mums, you'll find a lot of um, data to back that up. The whole tax system, everything is set up to force us into the workplace. And there are a lot of mothers out there who feel we're getting a very short shrift. So that's one thing I'd like you to comment on. And the other thing, you have mentioned men, but the, the facts are that if you look in, the, in schools, um, there are far fewer boys taking A-levels. They're coming out much worse with A-levels. Boys do much worse in GCSEs. I mean, it's quite incredible that we're still talking about improving the position of w girls at school when throughout the education system at every level, um, it's boys who are doing worse than girls, you know, and that's not even getting onto the much higher rates of male suicide, the fact that men die earlier, they're more likely to be homeless, their illnesses get less attention, and I find it quite incredible that in a, a subject, new structures for gender equality, we're actually not discussing the significant inequality which really affects men. And um, I mean, I, I would say you were asking about things for the future. Uh, I would suggest that you really do need to look at inequality as it affects men. And you, you probably will be you know, derided and chided and, you know, won't get funding for doing so, but you're a Christian organization and that goes with the territory. And, um, and I think you need to pay a lot more attention to the inequality as it affects men. Thank you. That's, that's actually, it's good to get that balance in this debate. Um, who'd like to start on any of those questions? Catherine. I'm happy to respond to your first points around, um, uh, around motherhood. And I think that's a really important point to focus on. Two, two responses. One, when we conducted Project 28 to 40, we ran some really interesting focus groups with women who had left work, um, predominantly to look after their children. Um, and a lot of those women actually were women who were in typically sort of low to middle income work, and they, they felt it was very much a choice um, to stay home with their families. Um, they, and they saw it as a privilege as well, that the, the role of the mother, they saw it as important. They didn't want to leave their male partners at home with the kids day in, day out. Um, but when we sort of really pushed the conversation and we said, okay, but what if actually, what if, if there is, um, you know, what are the barriers that would prevent you from going back to work, all other things excluded? And for them, it was, you know, childcare is cripplingly expensive in this country. And the fact that by the time they even got back to work, by the time they pay for their travel, the time they pay for their lunch, the time they pay for their childcare, they have nothing. In fact, probably a negative equity. And so if we said if we could find a way to empower you back in, what would help? And there were, there were so many positive responses, which were actually, that, you know, if there were a way of doing it, I'd, I'd definitely be up for it, but right now I can't. So yes, it's, it's absolutely a privilege to be a mother and to be home full time with their children, but they also wanted support to get back into the workplace at some point. I think the second point around that is just to, I guess I'd kind of argue your point around choice, that women make that choice necessarily, because you can argue choice assuming a, that level playing field that, that Fleur, refer, Fleur referred to, um, and the fact that all things being equal, yes, we can make that choice, and arguably, hopefully, men can make that choice too, but we're defined by so many different factors, and I think this is where we need to check our privilege, actually. A lot of women don't have the choice to stay home and be with their children. A lot of women are choosing low-paid work or particular types of work because 
socially conditioned to think that that's all they can do or because it's the only thing that is available, it's the only thing that they can take in addition to also looking after family. Women typically end up going into a very feminised um, sectors, what we call the 5C, so cashiering, clerical, cooking, uh, catering, cleaning, etc. Um, but we need to recognise that actually the pay gap looks at its best when we look at full-time equal work, but when we look at, at part-time work, it is, it is astounding, and that is predominantly women in those kind of, those kind of roles. It's, you know, women in low-paid work are, are, are more represented, and, and as I said before, it, it's harder to break out of those cycles. So I think just recognising that choice is a very difficult term to kind of wield about because often people don't have a choice, people are just making decisions based on a very limited set of, of parameters that they've been handed in life. Uh, and then I just want to add to that, I think you're absolutely right that for some women <coughs> being a mother is their primary identity, it's what they choose, it's, it's as you put it their main priority but I think you talked about gender equality and I think that's also an option that should be there for dads and I think it's not at the moment and I, that's what I was trying to emphasise in my talk is not that people should all go and work and care for children at the same time but those choices should be open mm. to all and I think at the moment fundamentally they're not and I think we still think that it's mothers who might see that as their main identity but that that really isn't the preserve of men and I think that's something that we really need to shift and I just want to echo Catherine's point about choice and that women earn less because of the choices they make we have a real problem with occupational segregation in this country um, and it's no coincidence that the areas that are highly feminized tend to be the areas that are low paid. This is about historical associations between women's work and what they should be paid. The idea is that women's work is pin money that they earn, that they're not the main breadwinner, therefore we don't need to earn them as much. And those are the legacies that we're seeing today. So I don't think women are earning less because they're making particular choices. I think we are really seeing that as a result of historical artifacts of, of what we consider to be the value of women's work and, and men's work. Um, and just in respect of boys doing worse in education, again, at parity, this is something that we're really incredibly interested in and, and fascinated by. Um, and I think it's interesting that in a lot of areas where women have for quite significant time been outperforming um, men and boys educationally, when we then look at it a decade on um, and look at their achievement in industry, they, the situation is often reversed. So I think there's a really interesting question about what's going on. Why are girls generally outperforming boys in education, but then still 10, 15 years later doing worse um, occupationally. So I think there's a lot to unpack there and I think it's really interesting if we do start to look at it in the round in terms of what's happening to men and women rather than just assuming perhaps that, that women are always worse off. Given our time and given that somebody very kindly asked the question about what one person can do, which was what I was going to ask you all to finish on, why don't I ask you each to tell me what you think the one thing one person can do is? Can I, I, I dive in? Yeah. Um, don't be alone. I mean, the person who asked the question said, what can one lone person do? My advice is don't be alone. Connect. And I would ask you, you know, if, you know, if I'm not following you on Twitter, you know, let's sort that out. We need to share with each other awareness of the stories of what's wrong and what's fixing the problems that we see. We need to be together. Um, to take this forward together. Thank you. Who's next? Oh, 
we're talking in general what one lone person. I want to urge everybody in the audience to get a young person to register to vote and to exercise <laughs> their vote because I think so much of what we've seen is so far in the election campaigns is about the power of the political constituencies that vote. And young people in particular, I think, are losing out. So if you can do one thing, sign a young person up, register, get them to register to vote. The deadline's really soon and make sure that they exercise their vote. So yeah, I would I would have said network as much 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 as you can, virtually or in person. Mentor someone, coach someone, engage with the men. If you feel like the lone woman, they're not all the enemy, and you, you might be pleasantly surprised. So um, talk and ask and explore. Um, I mentioned it at the end of my speech anyway, but just to, to that plea that we don't just recreate existing problems by focusing on the things that. Are personally so that we see that evidenced in the women on boards debate there's a great risk of just creating an old girls network in place of what was an old boys network so focus on issues focus on socioeconomic factors focus on education and privilege recognize that different women are experiencing different things and that there's more that we can all do to help one another great so I would like at this stage to invite all of you to stay for a drink if you'd like to talk further and to thank the panelists